Hi, and welcome to Deep Dive with Jamie Stein, where we take a deep dive look at all things reality TV, pop culture, and the world at large. I'm an intuitive and an empath, which means I pick up on the thoughts, feelings, and energy percolating in other people in the world around me. I believe there is meaning waiting to be found at every turn, if you're willing to see it. So join me as we dismantle everything from trash TV to high spiritual concepts and learn more about ourselves, each other, and how we're all connected. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Deep Dive with Jamie Stein. I'm really excited about today's episode because we are going to dive into all things Real Housewives of Salt Lake City as it's winding to a close. We are recording this post-season finale, pre-reunion. And I am approaching this as kind of the unofficial part two to the Heather Gay episode that I did the other month. I indicated there that that was going to be a part one of exploring Heather. And I actually feel like we actually did a much more exhaustive job than I had anticipated. But still, there's been a lot that's unfolded this season, particularly around her black eye the mystery surrounding her black eye, her emotional attitude towards her black eye that just felt necessary to touch down on before the season comes to a conclusion. But having said that, as I was holding this issue of Heather's black eye for myself and kind of feeling how limited (laughs) the possible field of exploration is simply because there's so little we know about it. And we never really got concrete answers as to what happened or how she received the black eye. I started broadening my attention towards some of the relationships around Heather, particularly her close friendships with both Jen and also Meredith, who we've never really gone too deeply into on this podcast. I think in part because Meredith does have a way of energetically disengaging. And there's a way in which she's somewhat at the center of things, but never really allows herself to be at the center of things. And so she's just never the most immediate cast member in the line of sight. And so therefore, she's never really ended up on the radar of the podcast. But I've always been drawn to her from a a point of interest. I mean, I'm not drawn to her as a viewer. I actually find her very kind of slow and sluggish to watch on screen. And I often find myself really wondering why she's even on the show and whether she enjoys it and what she really gets from this or out of it. But I am drawn to her also precisely for that reason. The mystery of Meredith Marks. There's a lot that's really confounding and contradictory about her. And I've been secretly waiting for the opportunity to get a little bit deeper into her. And so I just felt like as this season's winding to a close, this triangle between Heather, Meredith, and Jen, I mean, particularly in the season finale, we saw the three of them congregate as Jen was awaiting her trial. I just thought this might be a good entryway into Meredith, into that dynamic between the three of them. And really on a larger level, an entryway into perhaps looking at the last three seasons of Salt Lake City and perhaps starting to get more clarity on what we've been watching for the past three years. Because I know for me, and I've specifically spoken to this on the podcast, 
Salt Lake City has felt incredibly chaotic and at times very puzzling. And last season in particular, I remember often having a feeling of not even knowing what I was watching, not really understanding what these women were fighting about, feeling like there was so much going on beneath the surface that wasn't really being named, and just at a loss as to how to make sense of all of it. And I feel like for me, this season has actually clarified a lot And we'll sort of get into this more specifically as the conversation unfolds. But I feel like there's been a deeper commitment to clarity and truth from some of the cast members, namely Lisa, Whitney, and these two friends that we now have, Angie Kay and um, Dana, I believe is her name. Um, I feel like there's been a much deeper commitment to directness, clarity, and truth. And I feel like a lot of those underlying dynamics have now risen to the surface where I feel like I have a deeper understanding of what several of these women are actually fighting about. And I think a lot of it has to do with this concept of loyalty. I think a lot of it has to do with this concept of what it truly means to be a friend. And I think that those two notions of loyalty and friendship are a huge part of what Heather, Meredith, and Jen have in common. And I think by exploring each one of their respective relationships to the themes of loyalty and what it means to be a friend, we'll perhaps get deeper insight into what's going on for each of them individually, but then as a collective trio, and then perhaps really track that out to how that's been playing out in the broader group of Salt Lake City. And maybe we'll really be able to sort of tie up some broader themes that we've been watching unfold over the last three seasons. Because it really feels like we're at the end of an era at this point. I mean, there's even rumors that Bravo might be like putting the show on pause a la Dallas. Because I guess guess the viewer response by the end of the season has just been so tepid and so lukewarm. From what I've heard, the ratings have dropped. I actually personally have loved this season. I've found it to be like a a, a surreal fever dream. And I've loved the clarity that's come through. Again, we're going to get into all this, I think, in this conversation. But general viewer response has not been good. Jen's been sentenced to six and a half years in prison. She's going to be going off to prison soon. So whether the show comes back, doesn't come back, I'm assuming it's coming back. But it's truly the end of an era. And so what better moment to kind of look back on the last three chaotic years that we've had and sort of really reflect and hopefully sort of tie this all together through the prism of Heather Meredith, and Jen. So having said all that, let me welcome back a woman who needs no introduction because she is my go-to co-host. And I think she's been here with me for every episode of Salt Lake City thus far. Oh, except for the last Heather one. But other than that, she's been with me for every episode of Salt Lake City thus far. Welcome back to the deep dive. Hello, Piper Sample. Hi, Jamie. How are you today? I'm well. How are you? I'm good, actually. I'm having a Nice, energized end to the week. So, I mean, I hate to sound like such a, this feels like such a spiritual cliche, but I am so grateful (laughs) that that Mercury retrograde is over because it was a doozy. And I don't know about the people out there, but I was very slow, very inward and did not have a lot of extra energy for things like this. Well, here comes the new moon. We got it coming in. Well, so far, I'm okay with it. So hopefully it'll just, it'll continue to ride like today has been. All right. But having said that, we do, we have work ahead of us. It's time to roll up our sleeves and wade into these 
murky, oftentimes complicated and difficult to understand waters. Can I add annoying? <laughs> so you you are one <laughs> of the viewers who is now annoyed by Salt Lake City. You are, I don't know if disappointed is the right word. You are not happy with this season as it's coming to an end. I wouldn't say unhappy. I was just annoyed. There, there's something that really felt like it started to like happen with Whitney's healing that was going on. And then I don't know, this little triangle, I'm very interested to explore this, um, to, to hear your take on what's happening and to, to see if it relates at all to what I'm picking up on. Okay, great. And I love the idea of of touching down on Whitney's journey because she's someone else I haven't talked about that much. And I was very drawn to everything she was going through this season. And again, how it relates to the larger themes that have been playing out in the show and how it relates to the other cast members. And I'll also say, I am aware there are several storylines that it just felt like got dropped. So I felt like Whitney's storyline got dropped. I felt like we never really came back to Lisa's crisis of faith. Well, I'm calling it a crisis of faith. Her desire to have God more in her life. Mm -hmm. Even her storyline with her son and him not wanting to go to college. I just felt like there were a lot of threads this season that were initiated. And then everything just kind of abruptly halted in the season finale. And um, we are where we are. Mm -hmm. So having said all that, though... I feel like, yeah, my impulse, like I said, is to really pick this up with Heather again. And I feel like we have to touch down on this black eye and what was going on with that. As we all know, we do not have an explanation for what happened with her eye. I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I feel particularly called to conjecture about it. We, we don't really know what happened. But what we do know is that she did suddenly wake up that final morning or the second to last morning of San Diego. And suddenly she had a, what looked to be a very severe black eye. And she then made a choice about how to navigate that. And <laughs> I guess before I even get into anything, I'm just kind of curious because we haven't talked about this at all. Where are you in terms of Heather and this black eye? What were you picking up on? What was your experience of her manner of bringing this in and then walking with it for the remainder of the season. I don't even really know what to say because I'm I feel so disinterested in how she got it and the part of her that used it to make a big deal to imply certain things with the looks the lack of information, the dropping of I remember, I don't remember. It's just like it was confusing. What I didn't like was the way that she was using this as a way to get at Whitney mm -hmm. about how she didn't know anything because of their, you know, lack of friendship at this point. She was using something there and then she felt like she was using it in a way to hang someone out under the bus, but couching it as a very loyal like, I'm not going to say anything because I'm I'm loyal. And the two felt like they were overlapping and discounting anything that she was trying to make it look like it was, which kind of feels like happened for me this season with her where, you know, I know you had said early on, you could see through Heather's story, <laughs> the way that she would try to spin a tale to create a narrative around her, her storyline, I guess. And so I guess this was kind of the final cap for me to really 
see how see-through it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. As you bring up that kind of contrast, right? Or that tension or whatever the right language would be for that. It's like she's simultaneously hanging someone out to dry in a veiled way. But then, like you said, couching it under this context of loyalty. It's kind of like saying, look how loyal I am because I'm not hanging someone out to dry, even though I could hang someone out to dry. And by virtue of saying this, I'm almost hanging someone out to dry. I mean, it's like, I I sort of talked about this in the previous episode. And I think you and I have talked about this a bit too, where I'm always so drawn to that part of Heather that would repeatedly say this season, you've lost me forever. It's like the price you pay for her love. It's like there's a punishment that comes with her loyalty. It's, well, there's a demand that comes with her loyalty, right? And there's a price that you pay for her loyalty. And if you're not willing to pay the price or go along with her sense of loyalty, then you are going to be punished, whether that's in her withholding of her amazing love and her amazing goodness, or if it's her no longer guarding these quote-unquote secrets that I guess she's sort of hoarding. Yet she is right or die. Exactly. And it reminds me of at one point when she... (laughs) I mean, again, this happened to me with the first episode about Heather. She says so many different conflicting things. Like sometimes in the span of literally 10 seconds, and I've actually got an example I'm going to pull out. But so I start to get confused and overwhelmed. And it's hard for me to even find my thoughts because I'm trying to parse through all the different things that she's wielding and saying. But at one point when she's wielding this in a threatening way, she says, snitches get stitches. And it's kind of like, that's that's the flavor of all of this to me. It's like, I mean, she really sort of runs her friendship circle. Oh, I mean, how interesting that I'm bringing this in given Jen Shaw. I was going to say, she runs it like a crime racket. It's kind of like, we are as thick as thieves. We are loyal to each other to the end. It's like you have to be willing to go down in flames for your loyalty or else you're not really loyal. And if you're not really loyal, snitches get stitches. There's like a deadly aspect to the loyalty that she demands from people. And I will say, this is sort of jumping ahead, as I've been thinking about these themes of loyalty, and what it means to be a friend. And you know, I look at everything as pattern and I look at everything as waking dreams. It's not been lost on me that Jen has been navigating the situation in her trial around having these co-defendants who were part of her criminal tribe who are now taking plea deals and turning against her. Again, it's Mm -hmm. interesting to me as I take in Salt Lake City as a whole, we have this friend group, as they like to call themselves on the show. We have this friend group that's been navigating these themes of what it means to be loyal, ride or die, snitches get stitches. And then we have Jen, who is in a literal example of that, of this criminal telemarketing scheme where she was kind of like, it seems like the den mother, you know, with her loyal family members and that they're now turning on her. And then you even see her in the season finale, kind of trying to turn it on her assistant, Stuart. (laughs) He's turned on her to save his own ass. And then you see her trying to spin her own story of like, oh, Stuart's really the mastermind. So she's throwing him under the bus. And so disloyal. Well, exactly. Didn't someone say that? Was it Lisa Barlow or was it Whitney? Someone said basically, Jen, but I also feel like, Heather, it's kind of like you demand a loyalty that you then aren't willing to reciprocate. And both are saying the same thing. Which is what? 
I demand loyalty and I'm not willing to give it. I don't actually say the things that implicate someone, but what I do is I nod my head and really corroborate information that's coming with body language and cues, but I don't actually say very much and couch that as I'm being super loyal, but also with a threat. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so interesting. So because you could sort of make, as I was sort of saying all this, you could make the case, well, Heather at least does in a way demonstrate loyalty to people as long as she's good with them. Whereas Jen's just kind of, Jen's just sort of unhinged off the rails, clearly talks shit about everyone behind their back. But meanwhile, it's constantly demanding loyalty. Heather's not quite as unhinged, but what I love that you're bringing in, which is so true, is that, yes, she'll be more of a mastermind behind the scenes. So, you know, Whitney spoke to this. There's a way in which she'll set other people up to do the thing that she wants to do that usually is also about punishment in some way. Like if we think about just how charged and triggered she's been around Lisa and wanting to set Lisa up in certain ways. And so, yeah, there's a way in which, I mean, we really saw Meredith do this on camera in terms of how she was positioning Whitney to run with the rumors. But there's a way that Heather will do something similar behind the scenes. And so you could say there's a way in which she was loyal to Whitney all these years, but there's also a way in which she was very willing to let Whitney do the visible dirty work and to let Whitney, again, take the fall using this criminal language and sort of basically take her own plea deal and let Whitney answer for the charges. So in that way, yes, there is this kind of very energetic similarity between Heather and Jen as far as having this very kind of what I would call ambivalent or conflicted or contradictory relationship to loyalty. Well, and it feels to me like they use loyalty as a screen. It's like having, you know, when they have the body in front of the person with the gun, (laughs) you know, it's like, here, go after Whitney. She's in front of me here. She's the one that's talking about all this stuff. I never said anything. I sat there and listened and nodded my head, but I never said anything. I don't remember anything. You know, like I I go back to the second season at that one fishing, you know, like ice fishing thing that they went to when... Lisa was really trying to get Meredith and Jen to work things out. And Whitney and Heather were like kind of on the sidelines drinking their tea or cocoa or whatever they had. And it was like, they were getting so much pleasure out of what was happening. Mm -hmm. It was like such a, a negative pleasure. And I'm like, what is loyal about that? I'm staying out here on the sidelines, but ooh, let's... Let's find out where this is going to go. It's almost like, oh, yep, here, this is what's going to happen. The play-by-play, it's almost like an announcer watching this. And I just thought to myself when I was, I remember really seeing something about Heather around that time. And then this season just going, oh, this is just her method of being loyal and using her loyalty. Well, yeah, in that situation, who do you think she's being disloyal to? Like, how do you see loyalty working its way through that instance of negative pleasure? Well, up until that point, she was mad at Jen, I think, around that time because Jen wasn't being loyal to her. So she was getting pleasure Mm. out of somebody else kind of going after her, taking the brunt of what Jen does to her typically. 
I don't know if loyalty is something that I would say was happening in that moment. I think it was more like, I'm not in the middle of all this right here. I'm sitting back. I'm staying out of the fray, but I'm getting so much pleasure and enjoyment out of this. I have like a first front row ticket to it. It's also interesting too, because what I hear in that is obviously that negative pleasure, right? It's coming from her disowned rage towards Jen, right? And everything she's tolerated. Yes. And and I actually think by that point, she and Jen had made up. I think Heather and Jen made up very early in the season, second season. I think they ended the first season on a really bad note. And I I always have to bring this in because I, I don't know if this gets lost a lot, but it's always so striking to me. That first season reunion, <laughs> Jen was on the outside and Lisa was literally the only person on that stage who was willing to take any kind of stand for her and saying, look, I'm not here to see someone be on the outside. And I just, I don't know, it just pains me because, you know, you fast forward to the second season reunion and just seeing Jen pile onto Lisa with everyone and for to see Lisa be on the outside that second season reunion. I just, you know, I just hear the words like no good deed goes unpunished. But they ended Heather and Jen ended on a really bad note for a season. And then I think right at the beginning of the second season came back together because I remember it was this ridiculous conversation they had in some sort of like igloo. And Heather was confronting Jen with things that she had received. Like, I guess she had actual screenshots of DMs where Jen was calling her Shrek or something like that. And Jen was like lying through her teeth, denying it. And Heather was basically saying, Jen, you can't lie about this. I have photographic evidence. And what struck me about that scene at the time is I don't know that Jen ever really took responsibility for anything, but Heather forgave her anyway. My observation over all the seasons was that was the constant. Jen would lose it. She clearly was using social media as ways to really like create drama and then denied it all the time and then would take an apology without, she would say, I don't know what I'm apologizing for, but I'm so sorry with all these tears, you know, like, the the total victim in this. I'm always the one that's having to say, I'm sorry. And I'm thinking to myself, well, you're always the one that's like throwing the punches, throwing glasses at people, like losing it. And then posting or responding to media that was creating some sort of drama that she never took ownership for. But I think people were not wanting to be in her line of aggression And so would accept it just so that they could stay in some sort of... This is the question I have for you. What is the motivation of these women to prove their loyalty to Jen? Because I had a theory about that. And I'm curious what your thoughts are. All right. Well, let me say a bunch of things at once. Because I do want to circle back around to the point I was going to make before. And also to touch down on, I believe even what she said in that igloo scene, I think her the, her form of apology was kind of like, that may have been one of those instances where it was my social media team. I remember there was something about her social media team that it wasn't really her. It was her social media team, but I'm saying I'm sorry for my social media team doing shit. So it's like, it's always these bullshit apologies, right? And so then going back to that moment when they were doing the ice fishing, it's like, Heather, quote unquote, accepts the apology, right? But she knows on some level the apology is bullshit. And she knows she's sort of rolling over and playing dead for Jen's bullshit. So that's almost kind of where I feel the thread of loyalty, where it's like, 
there is this disowned rage in Heather towards Jen and what she's done. There's a disowned boundary. There's a disowned powerful no. She's never really owning it. She's not willing to make that clean break with Jen. She's not willing to separate or disconnect or take that stand. Perhaps in her mind, out of loyalty, I'm a ride or die friend. I'll forgive you no matter what. I'll keep taking you back. This gives me some sense of like currency and some sense of like, pride. Like, I look at how loyal I am to you. But yes, within that, she's obviously still internalizing deep anger and rage. And so then, yes, to your point, there she is witnessing Lisa having to take the brunt of Jen's insanity and getting negative pleasure out of it. So even though she might not be being disloyal to Jen in that moment, we are watching her experience or get a charge from negative pleasure that comes, I would say, at least in part, from the place in her where she overrides something in herself, namely her boundary, her anger, out of a sense of quote-unquote loyalty. Does that make sense? Yeah. Add around loyalty equals something. Yeah. But the other thing that I wanted to say about all this too, just to really name it is, well, and you're kind of bringing this question in, but a lot of people you know, end up asking what is going on with this friendship between Heather and Jen? And I have stuff to say about that. But what came to me as like a new possible answer, or it's like part of the answer sort of when we were talking earlier is the fact that I feel like these two both do have a relationship to the energy of the criminal mastermind. And I feel like with Jen, it's literal. She's been a literal criminal who's been out there conducting this telemarketing fraud. But with Heather, it's kind of like she's a figurative criminal mastermind in the sense of how she's been pulling the strings behind the scenes and sort of trying to sort of to direct the play. Like they're both kind of like their own little crime bosses. And I just think there's something for me that feels really exciting and good about just sort of naming that energy in both of them, that there is something that they have in common there. But I think just to circle back around to the question that you brought in, I've always felt that one of the primary components of Heather's relationship with Jen, especially coming back, because she was so incensed with her at the end of the first season. And then she came into the second season so ready just to smooth things over, throw all her past grievances out the window and move forward, even though there was no indication that anything would really change. I really felt on some level, this was about like a power play concerning Lisa that she saw Lisa forging a friendship with Jen. She saw Lisa giving Jen grace. She saw Lisa embodying something with Jen, like grace, forgiveness, a willingness to, you know, hold space for where she's at. And it was almost like, if I had to like give a voice to it, it's like, oh, no, no, no. Like, I'll show you how good a friend I am. Like, I'll show you what a real good friend is. Like, Lisa's not a real good fucking friend. I am. And I've said this since the beginning of second season. And there was even a moment, I think it was, I don't remember, they were on some sprinter van. But I remember there was a moment where Jen, when Jen started getting really upset towards Lisa in the second half of the season, again, because she felt that Lisa wasn't being fully loyal in terms of whatever her definition of loyalty was. I remember Heather saying in an interview, I feel bad for Jen that she's, I forget what the exact quote is, but it was just something like, She's finally seeing what a shitty friend Lisa is. And I saw it. I was right all along. So for me, I just always felt like there it is. That's at least one of the threads and undercurrents of this relationship of like, 
yeah, I'm going to prove I'm the real friend. I'm a better friend than Lisa Barlow. Like, you think she's ride or die? I'm the ride or die one, honey. And I mean, we can get into Meredith down the line because I feel like there's something very similar going on with Meredith. But I'm curious, you said you had a theory. What's coming up for you? So I kind of felt Jen throughout the entirety of these three seasons. There was really no evolution with her. She was consistently prove something to me. You're the only one that does that. Out of all these people here, you are the only one that is showing me loyalty right now. That's what I'm saying to your face. And then the next minute, you don't care about me. She would run away. Whoever was running after her, trying to calm her down, became the special one to Jen. So the way I was sort of thinking about it was Jen's ability in her mastermind, criminality, head boss, she had a way of making people special for a moment. And the the specialness came if you prove your loyalty to me. And your loyalty to me looks like you're going to follow me out. You're going to totally shun everybody that is doing something shitty to me in my perspective. And if you don't do that, if you forgive someone for what they did to me, if you forgive someone for what they were involved with, you're dead to me for five minutes until you're special again. And I think the three, I mean, the Lisa, Heather, and Meredith were very much in that pocket of, I need to prove something. I don't know if this comes from needing to be a special sister, you know, needing to be the one that you could count on but they got something from it. It was short-lived. It got, like you said, punished in some way. But I think it had something to do with being special. Yeah. I mean, there's so much to say. Again, I'm so drawn to this notion of how, yeah, Jen and I think Heather's version of loyalty, there really is this parallel to like criminal loyalty. It's not about what's rational. It's not about what's fair. It's not about what's right. It's just literally about you are with me no matter what. Even if I'm wrong, even if I'm in a total delusion, even if I'm completely contradicting myself, again, just like in a crime movie, you have to be willing to take the fall if you get caught. Like you go down in flames for the sake of the criminal group. And it doesn't matter. Like the only real virtue, is that the right word? Is loyalty itself. It's not about taking moral stands with Like, it's not about taking each situation as it comes and feeling into what's right and what's wrong for you. It's just about no matter what I say, no matter what I do, no matter what the situation is, you have to be with me at all sides and we have to be willing to die for each other, even if it makes zero sense. And as I say that, I'm just so aware of like how obviously binary it is, (laughs) how either or it is, life or death it is. It's like this way, or the highway, and that's it. Now, having said that, I don't, and I don't know if this is getting ahead of ourselves because this is something I want to bring in. I am so aware that Heather and Jen, and I would say Meredith, although I think it's subtler and it's sort of taken me more by surprise, but I see it in her. These are three women who I experience, <laughs> you know, and I'm always trying to like find gentle language for this type of thing. I mean, they just feel very split. And very not fully in reality, I would say. Like, 
something seems off. And that's interesting to me. It's just interesting to me that all three of them seem to have very extreme blind spots. It is interesting to me, just that kind of energetic connection of like, there's something so deeply split in me where I feel like Jen even forgot stuff. Like when she was in Lisa's face on the boat, and then a few hours later at dinner, she's literally not remembering what happened. It's so like there's these deep splits and just the energetic connection between that. And yes, this energy of like, you're either with me or against me. That's it. That's what loyalty is. And the second you're not with me, you are against me. And just the severity of like that, which comes in. And then just the contrast between what I think Lisa and Whitney were really trying to bring in this season, which obviously was sort of a more nuanced. And I mean, to her credit, what Lisa has been trying to bring in, I think, even since the first season, I mean, she was the one who was trying to broker a truce between Meredith and Jen. She was the one who was saying, I want to be friends with both of you. (laughs) And let's continue to hold space for Jen's humanity. And then, again, just looking at the reflections within reflections, this question of Jen's possible guilt or innocence and how that's held by the group. And suddenly there's this group that at least three of them are so binary and so black or white. And then there's this question that comes in about Jen's guilt or innocence and this middle ground we're in where it hasn't been determined yet and we're still in this cast with her and how are we going to hold this? And it's almost like, how does something like that get held in a group where there's at least half of them who are so committed to this notion of it's either this or it's that? I will say for sure, there are deep splits within this cast. And I would say Jen, for me, is kind of the catalyst Mm -hmm. that everybody organizes their splits around. And the way they do it has, like you said, kind of a, a slightly nuanced organizational pattern. But I would say Heather and Meredith reflect that split in the most, I guess, mirrored way, where Whitney and Lisa are trying to broker some, they were always in a position to sort of try to help other sides be seen, try to speak for the voice that was not being heard, that wasn't being listened to on any side all the time. And they were so, well, Lisa was so deeply invested in that. And I was really, I was kind of um, struck by that, how, I don't know, it felt like it mattered to her in such a life or death deep way. If these people don't get along, I'm not okay here. Yes. I really felt that at the beginning of the second season, like her deep investment in Meredith and Jen getting along. Yes. Constantly chasing them around. Don't leave. Stop disengaging. You know, stay. Because both of them, that's what they would do. Right. They they both Meredith leave. and Jen, just get up and leave. Throw a bomb. Get up and leave. Don't go far. <laughs> wait for, you know, there's just, (laughs) I think that's what I'm saying. It's like, oh, I start, that's where I started to tire of something that didn't feel like it was moving forward. And in this season where we saw some healing, you know, some truth, some things that felt so real that you could want to like wrap your arms around, invest some, some deep reflection in. And then it just sort of, I think Jen's narrative really 
kind of took over. As it always has, right? Yeah, but as a catalyzing something. Yeah, so bringing this back to Heather's black eye. I mean, I do want to say, yeah, there is stuff that I could say about Lisa's deep investment in brokering that truce, but I think I'll corral myself and because uh, I feel like, yeah, there's so much to get into here. So I'll leave that for another day. But I think that coming back to Heather's black eye, when I kind of dropped into Heather around that about like her attitude towards her black eye, I mean, it was what I felt was a lot of ways what we saw reflected it on screen. It was kind of this feeling of, yeah, like I've got an ace up my sleeve. Like, I'll show you what I can do. Oh, oh, I, what, what does this voice want to say? It's like, oh, <laughs> You're going to poke at me. You're going to like kind of put me in some sort of precarious position. Like, I'll show you what the fuck I can do. And it's interesting because when I when I kind of felt more into it, what I was so aware of, well, one, I was aware she was already making noise about like coming into this trip with no friends. You know, she was speaking to not really knowing her place in the group or feeling like she doesn't have a place in the group. And it was clear. It was something that was really bothering her and making her feel insecure. And then I'm just so aware the night before the black eye was that dinner where I guess it was revealed that Whitney had mentioned wanting a friendship break, which for some reason was just hugely offensive to Heather, which even that, I mean, it was just... Watching her, I mean, I really felt like I was watching like a 12-year-old, like a 13-year-old, watching her get so obsessed with the language of a friendship break and watching Whitney try to say, no, Heather, what I'm saying is we've been in conflict. Like, that's what I mean by a friendship break. And like, Heather couldn't even compute. And the fact that, because I just rewatched it, Heather actually didn't think there was even an issue between them anymore, apparently. Like, she seemed to be coming from this vantage point of, oh, we're all good. Wait, what? Like, there are things that aren't resolved for you, even though the last time, as far as we know, they had a one-on-one interaction. It literally ended with, like, Heather practically pushing her out the door. So, again, I mean, there's the split, right? Heather's, like, in her own reality, sweeping things under a rug, not in conscious awareness of what's really going on with her and Whitney. And then when the term friendship break comes into it, has this incredibly over-the-top reaction to it. Again, much like a 13-year-old finding out like her best friend like wants to take a break from her. But what I was so aware of too was that was the dinner where I felt like Whitney really started to find more of her voice and was able to articulate things in a really clear way. So clear, in fact, that other people were seeing it too. And I mean, I remember Dana saying, wait a second, Heather, the way that you're speaking right now, it's really passive-aggressive. I think even Jen at a certain point was like, I get what you're saying. And so for me, just from an energetic perspective, what I'm so aware of is there was this, like Heather was already insecure about her place in this group. And then there's this dinner where Whitney actually starts to find her voice. She brings in this voice of, you know, what we might call more nuanced truth. She's dismantling Heather's sort of black, white binary defenses where she just wants to shut things down. Other people are seeing it. And my personal feeling and experience of Heather is she's a control freak, you know, and I think she likes to be at the center of things. I think she likes to be able to control the personal narrative, the group narrative. And so my feeling was like, oh, I feel like what's going on here is she's feeling more out of control than ever. And then however this black eye appeared, it's suddenly in her mind, and I don't... <laughs> To this day, I don't understand what she thought she was... I really don't understand what she thought she was doing. But clearly, she thought she was reclaiming 
some form of power within that group. Like this gives me leverage within the group somehow. This somehow defines my place within the group. I have relevancy now, not just because I'm getting attention for this thing, which by the way, conveniently kind of makes me a victim, which is my favorite place to be, but also because then I've potentially got secrets that I'm alluding to. It it just felt like this, yeah, like a flex, like a power flex and a really strange, confusing, misguided grab for power of like, I've got my place back in the group. You all need to organize around me again. I'm vital to this group again. That's kind of how I experienced this. Now, I have something to say about this going back to the first season, but I also want to let you respond. Yeah, I think it's her confusion that we're feeling. She, I think, has tried to talk herself into being powerful, like to being the bad Mormon, but the good person. There's a way that her split for me shows up in ways where it's a conflict for her to just have some flow. It is always either Mm -hmm. or I'm this or I'm that. Mm -hmm. And this comes right after that, (laughs) but twisted. And I think that she holds something in relation to her experience of herself with other people that is deeply pained. Like my sense is that she was, you know, I think we talked about this maybe on another podcast, but like I wasn't the popular one. So I became the good time girl. I had to do something to get the attention that I really felt like I deserved and wanted and needed. But because I didn't get it in a sort of authentic way, I have to perform something all the time to kind of keep this narrative going. And if people aren't buying it, I'm going to have to like switch it up a bit and she'll do it so sloppily. <laughs> like it's, it's a sloppy, a sloppy switch where she almost like tries to switch tracks because something isn't working and then doesn't remember which track she's on. So it becomes very confusing as the viewer because you want to believe the part of her that is actually trying to be a good friend, trying to see both sides of things. But even when she's saying it, I don't actually believe her. Yeah, what you just said makes so much sense. Like that that experience of her switching tracks and then she can't even keep track of the tracks in her effort to perform something because I actually sort of made a note of it. That moment I was talking about previously where she was, when she said snitches get stitches, she was, so this was in the middle of the Greek goddess dinner. And by the way, I just, <laughs> I have to shout out, it cracks me up every time I see it. And Lisa is what did she say? 2022 Helen of Troy, I crack up. Because for me, I'm just like, like she's been very vocal about her contempt for theme parties. <laughs> and I was just like, 2022 Helen of Troy is just her way of not participating in a theme party. And I thought that was hysterical. <laughs> so anyways, Jen is stormed out because Dana, I guess, is mentioned knowing an informant in her case. And Heather and Meredith have followed okay. her. So Jen's really upset. And Heather's saying to her, okay, you want to shut them up? You should say to them, why don't we talk about how Heather really got the black eye? You know what they're going to do? They're going to go zip and we're not going to tell them because they don't deserve to know because they already do and they just want us to say it out loud. So before I even continue with this quote, 
this isn't making any sense. First, she's saying, mm-hmm. we're going to bring this out as like, I guess, a carrot to dangle in front of them, but then we're not going to tell them because they don't deserve to know, which implies they don't know. So in this moment, she's wielding it like it's a secret. This is the power that I have. Then literally in the next moment, so she says, because they don't deserve to know. And then she says, because they already do. And they just want us to say it out loud, which this makes no sense. So now it's not that they have a secret that's powerful that they don't know. Now it's everyone knows. And apparently everyone wants someone else to say it out loud for some reason. And I guess in Heather's mind, this gives her power because she's the only one who might say it out loud. And then she proceeds to say, you say that, like meaning we'll say how Heather got her black eye, because that's going to put the fear of God in some of them. You say, you know what? You push me, guys, and I'll tell you exactly how the black eye happened. And that's going to put the fear of God in them. So now it's like they do know. So went from they don't know and they want to know to they know and they want someone else to say it to they know and they're scared to death it's going to come out. And then that's the moment where she says, and then she literally says this to our point, Mm -hmm. I'm loyal to the core. Snitches get what? Stitches. And even in that moment, even Meredith was like, I am so confused. But like, I'm just bringing this in to really illustrate in a 10 second span, she contradicted herself three times. It makes no sense. And, you know, this is kind of why I start to bring in the mental, you know, the sort of the mental wellness aspect. Because and I and I don't mean this in a mean way. I actually mean this like, from a place of compassion and concern. It's like she doesn't seem fully mentally present and mentally well. And I think like I said, I think you just kind of encapsulated something so perfectly this idea of switching tracks. She's like an improviser. It's like, what can I say in the moment? that's going to be the right way to play the scene. But the driving spine or through line or theme, if this were like a play or a movie, is about, it's all about defining her goodness. And I talked about this in the last podcast, that her sense of goodness is always defined in contrast to badness. Whether it's someone else's badness or her own, it's like, I'm the good friend, you're not. I'm showing you what loyalty is because that person's not loyal to you. Like her goodness is always defined in contrast to badness. So there's this theme of like, I'm good. And then as we're saying, her goodness gets pretty much defined by loyalty. Like that's what goodness is in her mind. And so that feels like the the driving spine behind all her actions. But then from there, it's kind of like this improvisational dance where she's just saying whatever the fuck she needs to say in the moment to somehow prove some sort of quote-unquote empowered sense of loyalty and goodness against the bad ones, which again, I have to say, it's very criminal. Us against them, us against the world, us against the cops. You know, it's very like, again, thick as thieves. Yeah, and I think this is where Whitney and her, we see the separation of their thickest thieves. Whitney is after truth. And this is my experience anyway of it. If I'm going to stand behind someone, I want to know who I'm standing behind and if what they're doing is worthy of my support. Where Heather, it doesn't matter if you're doing something criminal. I'm loyal. I'm standing behind you. That is the goodness right there. 
morality doesn't matter in this context, as long as you know. Yeah, that's what I was saying before. It's like morality, none of this is about, the only morality is loyalty. <laughs> you know, that's, that's it. The other thing I was going to say, sort of going back to season one, for some reason, I do feel drawn to bring this in because I was just sort of thinking about that notion of Heather's insecurity around her place in the group. And what's so interesting about that to me is I've just gotten so curious about Heather and kind of who she's been for the last three seasons. And I ended up going back to the end of the first season and rewatching some of that. I was rewatching the whole, yeah, just everything that broke down with Jen. I think I went back to it because I wanted to revisit Meredith's response to Lisa kind of having lunch with Jen after that Vegas trip. Because for me, that that's really where I think the division in their friendship started. It didn't start with Lisa's hot mic rant. It started when Lisa <laughs> had lunch with Jen. And Meredith's not honest about that. Just like Meredith's not honest about a lot of things. We're still going to get to Meredith. But I ended up... I'm not mad. Oh, my God. Well, I know. We're going to get there. I mean, that's what's insane about Meredith. She will literally say the opposite <laughs> of what she's feeling. It's not just that she, like, doesn't vocalize what she's feeling, she'll insist it's literally the opposite. And I saw another example. We'll get to Meredith because I just saw another example of it recently. But so I was revisiting the end of season one and I was watching the reunion and it was so fascinating to watch and to see that Heather really was doing everything she's been doing this season all along. It was just so much better masked. So one of the like unresolved topics from season one coming into it in terms of like the conflict between her and Lisa was Heather saying we have 20 year history and we knew each other in college and Lisa saying I don't remember her I don't really know her and Heather just being so incensed about that and this is what's so interesting I had no memory of this I had no memory of this when I rewatched the reunion basically long story short it moves really quickly because Heather moves so quickly and then to be fair Lisa also moves quickly and there is stuff I could say about that. But again, this is about Heather, Meredith, and Jen, not Lisa. But they're both moving really quickly. But what happens is, if you watch it, Lisa actually proves what she's saying. First of all, she's very clear in what she's bringing in. She says, I met you in 2017. So yes, I knew you before the show. I met you a few years before the show. And I have a text to prove it. And then the show actually quickly flashes to the text that's dated 2017 from Lisa to Heather, where... Lisa says to her, I can't wait to meet you in person. And Heather responds. You know what I mean? So again, this is an example early on of Lisa's bringing in a clear truth. And what Heather does in that reunion is she does not respond to what's being brought to her and what she keeps saying over and over. And just much like Whitney says, she does. Like she talks over you and she shuts things down. She keeps saying her big point that she kept making because I guess it got brought up that Lisa was the one who suggested Heather for the show. And Heather keeps saying, oh, you suggested me for the show, but we don't know each other. You never met me before. Like, we have no history together. And no matter how many times Lisa keeps saying, no, I met you in 2017, so I did know you to recommend you to the show. I just didn't know you 20 years ago. Heather doesn't take it in. And she keeps saying that over and over. And it's, it's such a convincing thing that she's saying in the moment. Even Andy like says to Lisa, oh, well, look, you did recommend her for the show. So you did know her, you know what I mean? And you kind of see Lisa like scrambling, trying to kind of like get the truth out. Anyways, because a lot of people are saying 
what's happened to Heather this season? And it's like, no, no, no. Heather was doing this all along. We just didn't know her well enough yet to see what she was doing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But the other, so I then dropped into Heather towards Lisa around, like why? Because I just got curious, since Lisa proved that she was telling the truth, why was Heather going into that season saying, I have a 20-year friendship or history with Lisa Barlow? And so when I dropped into it, what came to me was, again, it was just this feeling of like, I want to be the center of the group. I want to be the one who's got a relationship with everyone who's somehow kind of the focal point. And then as I sort of let this voice speak, yeah, what comes through is like, I want to be the one everyone comes to. I want to be the one everyone confides in. I want to be the one who pulls the strings. And so I'm just bringing this in because, you know, much like I said, my initial hit around that black eye had something to do with insecurity about where she is in orientation of the group. When I went back to season one, I was feeling it even back then of like, I've got to, yes, manipulate and control and write the narrative in a way that centers me in the group. Yeah, in a way that I somehow can control and be in control. Mm -hmm. And if I don't have that control, that's incredibly uncomfortable for me. What I'm getting right now is the maybe the strategy in which she uses because she isn't for instance, in comparison to Lisa, she's beautiful. She's, you know, commands the room. She talks super friendly. She gets things going. She's popular. I would imagine she was the popular girl. And Heather's strategy is to hitch my wagon to that powerful, popular person and be there ride or die. And I am now associated with popular, powerful, Mm -hmm. whatever you want to name it as. And I have their secrets. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I hold their confidence and I hold it over their head so that I'm useful to them. Mm -hmm. So there's two things that she does there. One is identifies who she needs to sort of hitch her wagon to, how she then kind of positions herself there in the first season, you kind of saw her maybe a little more meek in that, but could feel the undercurrent of what she was doing. And then I think by the third season, she was kind of full of herself. I think she ended up, I feel like there's something about the show that gave her the fame or the popularity that she was sort of looking for and didn't feel like she needed the other people as much. And then kind of got shown differently and towards the end, like, oh my gosh, Whitney's not my ride or die. She's been my shield this whole time. I've been using her to kind of position myself and that's not working. So I felt like things kind of started falling, unraveling for her, falling apart. And at the same time, she was also doing a lot of things in her business that were growing. She put a book out there. There was a lot of stuff that she was now, not just within this little pool of housewife women friend group but like oh wait people know I'm going I'm on talk shows I'm being interviewed I'm people know who I am now and I think that split that we're talking about sort of really started (laughs) cracking yeah there's a couple things that I also want to bring in just as we're exploring the Heather Gay groundwork, what I'm so aware of in all of this too, because you mentioned like, okay, I'm not going to be the popular girl, so I'll be the good time girl. And it just makes me think again about how one of the things that came up in that first season was Lisa saying she had heard that 
Heather was the good time girl who like lifted up her shirt and said, honor code, say what? And Heather was like scandalized by that. But it's just so interesting to me. I mean, I couldn't help but notice when they were on their San Diego trip, Mm -hmm. what's kind of the first thing that's happening as soon as like they're letting loose and having fun. I mean, Heather's lifting up her shirt and saying, show me the titties or whatever she's saying, which by the way, obviously, hopefully it goes without saying, I'm not judging that at all. But it's just interesting information that she was so opposed to the idea that she would have ever done that. And yet we literally see her doing that on the show. And Look, there's no way to know whether it's true or not true. But when I hear you talk about the different roles that she plays, let me just say this. It lands with me as possible in terms of like, in the context of what we're talking about, of this woman who's trying to kind of define an identity for herself in relationship to the larger group. And on some level sort of doesn't trust who she is to be enough in some way. And again, has to find these different tracks in order to perform for other people. And the reason why I'm bringing this in is, like the other thing I want to mention is that I I received a, uh, a DM from one of my listeners after the last episode who was talking about how, I guess the word on the street is that a big part of the reason for her divorce from her husband was that she did kind of have a secret life where she was out doing things that Mormons aren't supposed to do. So she likes to position it now as like, I've always been the perfect Mormon. And now that I'm divorced, and I'm leaving the church. I'm letting myself have sex and I'm letting myself drink. And this listener told me, and actually I've heard it elsewhere too, that this actually isn't true, that Heather has a bit of a reputation for going out and doing this stuff. And so I don't know, there's something about all of this that kind of fits in here about, again, this division between good and bad. And like you brought something in about what it would mean for her to just let herself flow. And it's like, I don't know, it's almost like I'm experiencing it as either an energy that wants to get out and express itself or a persona that I'm playing, but it leads me to do things that according to my religion, according to my culture, according to like the system around me is bad. And it's something that I need to hide. And then let's just say these rumors are true. She literally gets divorced, you know, or it plays a part in this divorce, which, you know, again, is so shameful for her. And she's been very vocal about that. And there's just something in this about that division between good and bad and how she holds both of those for herself and her unwillingness or inability to actually reconcile and integrate them, but to continue to have them on opposite sides of the room, but now trying to write a narrative where she's integrating them, but in a way that's lying about where she's coming from. This is where I maybe feel she is confused and doesn't recognize the track jumping or the lies I remember talking to you about this before at another time. I think we were asking something along the lines like, do you think she's consciously spinning these lies or is it unconscious in her? And I think there is the criminal mastermind part that wants to create narratives that definitely does that on purpose. And I think there's, a if you pull back a little bit deeper with her, there is a deep confusion about goodness in general. Like Mm -hmm. I I can just sort of, if I feel her in a family that was very religious 
you know, that really was in this community. And there's a lot of pressure in that. And there's also, it's very, like, everybody knows everything about everybody in these type of communities. Like, if you step outside the line, you are, it's a scarlet letter. You know, you are definitely known for something like that. So I can imagine her being someone that had a little bit more of a wilder side and is creative, has a lot of energy. You know, she has a lot to bring to the table. Very sexual. But the pressure of having totally, like, alive. And imagine being squished and squished and squished and squished and being expected to be the good Mormon all along. Otherwise, you are shaming your entire family. It's not just you here. This is, you are staining your entire family. And then she ended up with this guy who was the golden boy in this culture. And so now she's really having to be in the pressure of performing something and then living potentially (laughs) as you're bringing in, I don't know, some secret life and that conflict in there, that deep conflict. If I'm living two different ways, one is super fun and expressive and gives me something and isn't bad, but is bad within a culture that says it's bad, I could imagine being quite confused about who I'm supposed to be and how to move my energy out into the world in a way that is satisfying and I'm met fully. And I think the need for her to find that is, I think we're watching it sort of play out in this group. And should I bring in a twist? Yes, because it's certainly there. (laughs) Well, I wasn't going to mention this, and I'll just sort of speak to it cryptically, but I I do remember, you know, this is a conversation you and I had. So I recorded the last episode about Heather with Emily Hanks from She Speaks Bravo, who was such a great guest. I then talked to you and was kind of downloading you about what we had explored in the conversation, and then you and I were talking about Heather. And I... I'm sure you remember, I really had this moment of something coming in in a very deep, intuitive way, which, you know, again, I always say this, but just as a reminder, I'm always just mindful. I do not know Heather Gay in real life. She's not here. I'm going off a TV show and I honor and respect the depth of what comes through in this podcast. And I think, yes, a lot of it is true. And I also want to recognize, you know, I just want to say take all of this with a grain of salt because she's not here and, you know, who knows. But I want to say in that moment when we were talking, I just got such a deep sense that, oh God, even as I'm saying it, I'm feeling it so deep in my heart. Just there was something that happened really early on, you know? And I know that um, like Whitney's bringing in recovering memories of abuse. And in Whitney's case, the way she's describing it, it sounds very kind of systematic, ongoing, and over a long period of time. For me, what I got from Heather this particular hit was like something happened when she was young. Like it feels like two, three, maybe four. It feels like isolated, like one instance or maybe two instances, but it was like isolated. And when it came through for me, it was just this feeling then of like the unconscious young choice she had to make around. It's like, I can see it and feel it in my body. I'm just trying to find the language. It's like sectioning it off. It reminds me of that myth, like the Minotaur who's at the center of the maze and you have to like, or the labyrinth. And it's like, they have to go to the labyrinth to find the Minotaur in the center. That's what it feels like. There's this, some sort of core 
traumatic experience that happened. And part of why I'm bringing this in is because you're really speaking to the family system and the cultural system. And I feel that here. It's like the knowledge, even at this young age, there is not room or space to bring this out, to know about it, to speak about it. So I have to just build a labyrinth around this because I'm not allowed to know about this. Because if I know about it, it threatens something for others. It threatens something for me. So I've just, since recording that episode, and, you know, other people have mentioned this too, it also might inform some of her reaction to Whitney's claiming this experience for herself. I mean, I think it's multifaceted. I think there's a lot going on there. And again, if what I'm speaking to is correct, I'm saying I wouldn't even expect or suspect that Heather knows about what I'm talking. Like, this feels like an unconscious experience that happened. Buried. Yeah, and so I experienced it as this buried core thing that a labyrinth got built around and then layered on top of that was all the social conditioning you're talking about. And even that, let's just say I'm right, that experience alone is going to create mixed messages about my energy. You know what I mean? What it means to let my energy flow. And then, yeah, like layered on top of that, all these messages coming in and it starts to give me more of an understanding of why there might be a very deep split that things get confusing for her and her sense of reality. Yeah, I was thinking too, like about those type of experiences that they don't have to be as like where something happened to her per se. There's something at a young age where even if you witness something that you don't quite understand that doesn't match the narrative that is being expressed in the home, whether it was something violent, whether it was anything that was hard to understand based on what was being performed in the culture, family culture, external culture, that that alone could distort something enough to like, wait, what am I seeing and hearing? I like what you're saying here because the type of things that I remember her saying is just how there's this performative way people in that Mormon culture behave and maybe behind closed doors, something else is happening. She kind of infers that in a few different ways. Like she implies that there's a lot of stuff that's happening that nobody really knows about. Mm -hmm. And then when Whitney starts talking about something truthful that's happening, she's having some unconscious reaction to it. Mm -hmm. She's becoming like outwardly violent. (laughs) She's pushing Whitney around during this like revealing time. There's something that starts happening when... Whitney starts talking about things that aren't supposed to be talked about, Mm -hmm. whether it's Whitney's experience that she had, that she's trying to get clarity on, or conversations that were had behind closed doors about who was doing what. And nope, I wasn't there. You know, there's something that she, in that compartmentalized way, does that feels so deeply unconscious. Mm-hmm. that I could imagine a, a world where she actually isn't lying. She's already convinced herself that that's what's happened. Therefore, is believing what she's saying that happens 
to have a distortion. Yeah, and just to be clear, I actually, I would say most of this is unconscious. I mean, that's how I experience it. Because again, the stuff she's saying doesn't make sense. You can't go from what I just read, the three contradicting (laughs) statements within 10 seconds and be like mentally lucid. It's like, she's lost. I mean, I think, I think she's lost in the hall of mirrors. And, you know, I don't know if this is me getting kind of too, trying to draw too fine a point on things, but it's almost like, as I hear you speak, and I hold these themes of loyalty, and I hold these themes of what it means to be good versus what it means to be bad. Like, I do wonder if there's some sense in her of the way that she has been loyal to family, to culture, through her silence, through the things that she's not said and the price she's paid for it. You know, she's gone down with the ship in a way and then was hung out to dry. She feels, you know, she feels she was hung out to dry in terms of, I mean, again, how much of this is true? Like she writes a story of her really being excommunicated from her family you know, we went into this a lot in the last episode, so I won't rehash it. But I have to say, there's been a lot of evidence on the TV screen that there's actually also support for her. You know, again, I just have to shout out, like I kind of brought up in the last episode, I really called into question. There was one point in the season where she was trying to write a narrative that she had just made headway with her family because her cousins came to her ski day that she organized. And she was so moved that her cousins came and she was so hopeful for the future with her family. And then Lisa Barlow tweeted her father's obituary. And because of that, she's claiming her family now wants to distance themselves from her again. And that's kind of the story she was writing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, basically blaming Lisa Barlow for everything. And what I was saying in the podcast was like, you know, she's saying one thing at the dermatologist's office, but when you go back and watch that ski day, There is no evidence that this is in any way like an estranged family coming together to finally show Heather's support. There's no drama. There's no moment. The cousins seem very kind of casual and like just happy to be there. And we were kind of laughing about it, actually. But it's so funny to me because the cousins show up again in the season finale. And it's the same thing. And you actually literally see how they're saying things like, oh my God, like what's my mother going to say when she sees this book party and my cousins are here? And and again, I was just watching these cousins and they just seemed so comfortable with the environment. Like it just, what Heather is saying doesn't seem to match what I see on TV. And it's not that I don't believe that there wasn't some price that she paid with the divorce. It's not that I don't think there isn't some truth in it, but it is hard for me to know where that line is of what's true. And where's Heather lost in her hall of mirrors making herself bad, aka good, in response to the quote-unquote good family, aka bad family, rather than kind of bringing this back into where we started, allowing herself to be in a more nuanced, integrated vision of like, yeah, I've got some shit with my family and there's limitations and we're working through it and there's ways they're showing up for me and there's ways they're not showing up for me. And they're, you know what I mean? And just like letting it be, letting it be (laughs) in all of its complexity, you know? That's hard for me because I'm not special there. Yeah. I mean, there's one last question I want to bring in about Heather, but the last thing I'm sitting with is just kind of this notion of her possibly being this young woman who was lifting up her shirt at parties or a married, you know, woman who was maybe out drinking when she wasn't supposed to. And just, I don't know, that aspect of her that was doing things she wasn't supposed to. 
and just that inner conflict. I don't know. Is there anything more to say about that or no? I think she loves that part of herself. I really think that that's a a freedom that she is trying to learn to have, was always trying to learn to have. And yet it was still sort of cloaked or kind of, it's almost like a, a net around it that said, yeah, you can do this, but there is a price that you're you're going to lose a lot if you're found out. You're going to, this is very dangerous what you're doing to your eternal life, your your future with your family. And I think she's always had to kind of make a decision about, right. it's kind of like that individual versus collective. How do I be who I am in a system that doesn't allow who I am to exist? Right. Yeah. So then that does bring me back again, if I am right about this, to that sort of maybe early core wound and just this experience of there was something that came in, even before all the social conditioning, there was something that came in so early that kind of said basically like, there's something in you that's got to be stomped out. Like there's an experience that has to be stomped out. Again, it just I keep feeling it for the sake of everyone around you. Like if you name this aspect of yourself, it like rocks the boat for you and everyone involved. And so it's got to get pushed down. And again, as Heather and the price I paid for that. And then just, yeah, kind of continuing to be in this inner conflict with her own energy. And again, it just makes so much sense to me because it is this theme of like the clan, the loyalty of family, like the crime family. It just, it, to me, it has that kind of flavor to it. It's like, we play by the rules. We abide by the rules. Like these are the rules. Okay. So that's all interesting. So the question I would bring into all this that you kind of started touching on, and then we can maybe transition a little bit to Meredith is, um, you know, you brought in the TV aspect, which is really interesting to me in all of this. And you also sort of Mm -hmm. brought in again, that question of like, you know, why is Heather going back to Jen and so committed to her? My question to you is, do you think that let's just say they weren't on TV or they weren't on TV anymore, or like the second season wasn't renewed? Do you think that Heather would have forgiven Jen and become friends with her again? Or do you think that the fact of them still being on this show together and being in an ensemble together played a part in her willingness to forgive and to sort of go back all into the relationship? My initial feel is that the being in this cast was a, a factor but I don't really know their relationship outside of what we're shown. So I don't know how deep their friendship actually is. And one of the things, I think it was in the second season when they were in Vegas and Jen like took her on this special shopping trip or, you know, I think Jen also was a big part of a client in her business, you know, is what I, I remember. So my hit is that it was conditional on some level about what Heather's getting from it. If there was no goodies for Heather, I don't think it would have been loyalty. She would have, I think I, my sense is that there would have been a a discarding. I mean, she left the church. She left her family. I think, I think she has the capacity just to drop things. Yeah. It's interesting because I was thinking of doing a video for IG of all the different cast members reacting, like dropping into each cast member's response to Jen's sentencing. 
which I have not recorded like most of my <laughs> fun fact for the listeners. Most of my videos don't get recorded. But you have great ideas. I know. Well, this is why 2023, Helen of Troy 2023 is the year of more time and space to create more content. But that aside, I did start kind of like exploring around. And it was so interesting because when I dropped into Heather towards Jen's sentencing, <laughs> oh my God, first of all, I'm just remembering the first thing that came in that's totally related to what we're talking about. The first thing that came in was actually kind of like, kind of like looking around at everyone else, like looking around at the world and the world's response and what they're saying and kind of a feeling of like, if I had to put words to it, like, how do I play this? Where do I go from here? What's the temperature of the world's response? So again, that that just that flavor of how do I orient towards what's happening around me and how do I position myself, you know what I mean, in the sort of the most advantageous way. But then also what I felt underneath that was kind of like, a, it was almost like a quiet anger. It was kind of like a disappointment. It was kind of a sense of emptiness. And as I felt into it, it was like this feeling of, oh, wait. Like Jen's gone off to jail now and she's gone. She's not here anymore. And I invested all this time and energy into being this ride or die friend and showing up for her. And now she's just gone. And it was almost this feeling of like, I'm just sort of here with the empty space. And kind of this feeling of like, as Heather on some unconscious level having to reckon with what did I just put all my time and energy into? Like, where did this get me? What was the return on my investment with this? It's just like, she's just gone now. And so it's just interesting because you're talking about the goodies or what she gets from it. If I trust the information that's coming through, it's like just this idea that, yeah, there was something that I was deeply invested in proving with this. There was a certain currency that I got out of this that fed me and fueled me. And almost like her going off to jail now, it's almost, yeah, it's almost like a metaphorical reckoning of all this time and energy into trying to prove something. And now there's just nothing there. And I'm kind of left with myself in the hollow space that's been created by kind of giving myself away to something that wasn't real. Mm -hmm. And how are you going to play that? Are you going to be a victim here? Like, where does this take you? How are you going to come out? That's such an interesting question. Well, again, as Heather, it kind of all depends. <laughs> it's like, is the show renewed for a third season? Am I on the cast for a third season? How is Jen interacting with me from jail? Like, it's, I don't know yet because I got to wait and see how this is going to play out before I choose my track. Okay. But I will say my first hit in this present moment as Jamie channeling Heather was kind of like, I did feel some sort of victimization that wanted to come in of like, I gave all my time and energy. I showed up and this is what I got. Totally taken advantage of. Yeah, exactly. Once again, I was the one who was loyal and here is this person who was so disloyal, so I disappointing and took me down, made me look bad. It's a lot, you know, I hope that she, I mean, I, I do have genuine concern for her and especially if the show does keep going and especially with the backlash she's getting now. Like, I just, I hope that she can find real help. That's actually really what I hope for her. I hope that she can find real help mm -hmm. and start maybe dismantling some of this stuff in a real way. Yeah, like if I were, you know, to offer in a little prayer or hope for her, it's always slow down. 
and really take a look here first in, inside. I'm pointing to, to her heart here because I think there is just something fun about her. You know, like she wants to have a good time and she can be a good time. She's fun. And if she can let go of needing or understanding what it is she needs and giving that to herself in some way, she might actually come out with a little more consciousness and honesty about what she has to offer in terms of loyalty. Yeah. I mean, I was saying this last episode, but I just think she needs to go so slowly. (laughs) So slow. Like her inner child needs so much slowness to create safety. And in some weird way, she's almost suddenly reminding me of like Teresa Judice, but different because, uh, how do I say this kindly? You know, Teresa... I will just say Heather is a lot sharper than Teresa. I think that Heather, yeah, just from an intellectual standpoint, I think that, you know, Heather is a very smart woman. But I think in terms of emotional intelligence, suddenly I kind of just see them very similarly. It's just like, it feels like a child's grasp of emotional intelligence. And I just think that she, her inner child needs to be held by the fucking hand and walked through things so slowly. So, you know, again, the problem with this world is I don't always know where you can get what I would call sort of sensitive, meticulous, deep help. But my prayer for her is that she finds it. Yeah, it's just really slow it down. I want to add one piece in here because it relates to that. There was a point where she was trying to get an apology from Jen I think it was maybe the first or second season. I can't remember about something. And Jen kept saying, I don't know what I'm supposed to be sorry for, but I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And Heather just kept speeding up, speeding up, speeding up and saying the same thing. Like you need to be genuine or I don't remember exactly what it was, but I felt the place in her that can't let in something too, like in that speed Mm-hmm. I can't let myself feel something there. So that would be another thing is to to trust that there's something for you to actually be in contact with in terms of walking yourself through a real feeling. And I do think, I think that's actually one of the things that she and Lisa have in common. Again, when I was revisiting first season, I mean, as everyone knows, I liked Lisa from the first season. And yet like that reunion... That reunion was so confusing to me, which is why we did a whole episode about it because they were so triggered by each other. And I was trying to feel into what was going on between the two of them. Watching it now in hindsight, you know, what I really got from it this time around was taking in Lisa's experience of there are people here who are telling lies about me. There are people here who are writing certain narratives about me and just how intolerable that is for her. And like that Lisa is someone And maybe this is Lisa's own relationship to control, which I think it's very different from Heather's relationship to control. But yeah, I think Lisa has a relationship to control. And I think for her, I think feeling misunderstood is intolerable to her. And so if she thinks that if there's something out there that's not matching up with what she knows to be true for herself or her own intentions, she needs to clear the record. And she will do anything and everything to clear it. Hence, I'm going to tweet that obituary. I think in that place, it's so uncomfortable for her. And again, I always go back 
to what she was saying to John at that reunion where she was like, I'm being attacked for who I am. I'm being attacked for who I am. Like, I just, I said it then, I'll say it now. I feel like there's some sort of relationship to that for her, like historically about what it means to be misjudged and to be attacked for who you are that is intolerable for her. And so she will race to fix it. And I think on some level that was Lisa's Achilles heel in that reunion of like, Heather's coming at her so fast. And so then Lisa's coming back just as fast. You know what I mean? And then they're just clashing. Mm -hmm. And I think for Lisa, it's the pain of, wait, I've got the truth on my side. You've got to see this and you've got to know it. But I think the fatal flaw for her is when she starts trying to prove things and she starts wanting to set it up so that everyone's seeing her the way she experiences herself, not, I think this is the difference, not like, I think with Heather, it's, I want you to see the facade I'm creating. That's not how I experience it with Lisa. I think with Lisa, it's like, this is the truth of who I am. And I want you to see it. Yeah. Or at least this is my experience of the truth of who I am. And I want you to see it. But I think what happens is because she starts to move so fast and she's pulling out the tweets and she's pulling out the text and she's doing this and she's doing that. She starts to feel, you feel her control freak. And I think that probably is a lot of reason why there are people who start to feel this sort of lack of trust in her. Because it's like, she's suddenly juggling a lot of balls trying to prove something. And kind of like, again, in a different way from Heather, but similar, I would want to say to like the Lisa from season one reunion, Lisa, slow down. <laughs> slow down. Like, you don't have to prove anything. You don't have to let Heather know how and why she's wrong. And as I say that, it's like, if I start feeling the hypothetical example of like, what would happen for Lisa if she didn't feel the need to correct the misperception? And it's almost like what comes up for me is I think she'd feel, I think she'd feel the deep pain. I feel like she'd feel the deep hurt. And, you know, she might sit on that reunion stage and break down and cry. I mean, she cries. She cries. It's not like she will never show that vulnerability, but I think there's a deeper layer of vulnerability that to her feels very vulnerable, like tender. It's the place where she can get hurt. There's something that I see in in her and Lisa that I think is unowned, if that's a good word. It's the places where people are feeling that she thinks she's better than them. Like, I think it comes from a projection, like it was really coming from Whitney, like in the first, Whitney and Heather. I think Heather sort of fed Whitney's idea around Lisa thinking that she's better than other people. And it's not really what generates a lot of Lisa's comments, but yet there is a place that she believes in herself enough, really wants to be true to who she is and has a very difficult time when other people aren't doing that as well. And when people are saying what you are doing or saying is landing as you think you're better than me. And she is doubling down and saying that is not, I'm a champion for this. And then she speeds up and then proves their point. (laughs) It's like if she could just slow down there and take in what they're saying, I think she might get some information about, I guess, how she comes across. Yeah, it's almost, I mean, what I'm hearing, it's like she wants so 
deeply to be seen and heard for who she is. And so then when, if something comes in that doesn't match with that, she pushes, pushes, pushes until like my point is heard. And it's almost like that's how she sort of unconsciously sets herself up to continue to not be seen and heard because it's like she's pushing something and then she's not felt. She's not feeling them and then she's not felt. She's not feeling them. Right. That's the key. Because it's almost like she experiences it as if I feel them. Like if I take in what Whitney, even if Whitney's completely in her projection, which she often was. Yeah. Completely in her projection. Yeah. She was in her projection. If I let my, it's almost like a voice that says, if I let myself take in how Whitney is experiencing me, somehow it will make it true. Exactly. I'm in a lose something. Right. That's what I'm saying. It's like the her for her, that experience of feeling misunderstood is intolerable. So I have to imagine there was some early experience around feeling misunderstood, the price she paid for that. And that's why I'm saying it's like if she could just slow down. I mean, now she's friends with Whitney. But like if Whitney's coming to her saying, look, Lisa, I feel like you're judgmental and you think you're better than me. And this is sort of where it takes me. If Lisa, I think, could slow down in those moments without a need to like defend herself, to race, to prove her wrong, to say, no, this is why you're wrong, and just take in her impact on Whitney, regardless of how lost Whitney may or may not be in her own projections, I think it would take her somewhere beautiful, actually. Because I think that Lisa actually is very sensitive. I think she does have a big heart. I think she cares a lot about people. Yeah, I think I just named it. I think the blind, if you want to call it that, the blind spot of the Achilles heel is if I let someone have an experience of me that doesn't match up with what I think is the truth of me or my intentions, somehow there's a chance, not like get proven true, but like people will believe it. It's the story that will get written about me. Like I'm in danger there somehow rather than having trust in her own inner experience of who she is her own good intentions, trust in the universe to have her back. Like, even if there are people who are misunderstanding, because look, we all get misunderstood. I mean, right now there are people out there who don't like Jamie Stein, you know what I mean? And are saying negative things about me and, and maybe they have a point, I don't know. But the point is, it's like, as long as I'm aligned with my own experience of myself, then it doesn't really matter so much. And maybe if there is something someone wants to bring to me, I can be open to hearing it. Mm-hmm. You know, whenever we get into this, it just, it does always touch me because I do feel, you know, what I experience is just, I don't know, just something very sensitive, something very sad and something very sweet. You know what I mean? Just something that says, like, I want to be able to have my heart. I want to be able to be in deep connection with people. And yeah, there's something in me that doesn't fully trust to let people have their experience of me, whether it's true for me or not. You know, like I won't fully trust. All right. So shall we just touch on Meredith? We should. It's so interesting, right? Like I know all this time we've been talking, how much she just kind of slips through the cracks. I know I was aware of that the whole time. I was like, oh, Meredith's fading into the background again. Uh-huh. Experience Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania in 3D. Scott Lang, you have a daughter. You're an Avenger. <laughs> but out here, you're out of your league. On February 17th. Kang's a monster. He can shatter existence. An Avenger. I don't care what he can do. I'm getting us home. Must face a conqueror. You may not want her to watch this. I'm sorry, Cassie. 
Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. Experience it in 3D. February 17th. Rated PG-13. May be inappropriate for children under 13. I mean, I guess I'll just say up top that um, all of this is so fascinating to me because... So first of all, just going back to that original conflict, that kind of was the fracture in her relationship with Lisa, which was about Jen. If you go back and watch the Vegas like breakdown of things. So what set the whole thing off, it all came back to loyalty. So if you remember, Jen had been really pissed at Whitney, I guess, for bringing in something to Sharif's like birthday party. She brought in a rumor about Mary, had said that, Lisa and Meredith were scared of Jen and Whitney delivered this at Sharif's birthday party. Jen was so upset that Whitney would bring this in at the birthday party because you ruined Sharif's moment. And at the time, Meredith and Lisa were also mad at Whitney because they were like, you're spreading rumors about us. They're spreading gossip about us. Then Whitney apologizes to Meredith and Lisa in Vegas and they reconcile. And again, it's interesting because even when you go back and look, you really see Lisa saying, she apologized, she owned it. This is like, I forgive and I forget, we move on. Like you see her kind of inhabiting this space of people make mistakes. Now we're moving That's forward. That's all I need. Yeah. yeah. And Jen was outraged about this and started flipping out on them. So again, all of this, it's loyalty is at the center of it. You're either with me or against mm-hmm. me. And what's so fascinating about it is specifically what started getting Meredith so pissed off. She said, no one is going to tell me who I can and cannot be friends with. So ostensibly, what initially got Meredith very mad at Jen was this kind of ride or die loyalty. Who are you to make me bad because I want to be friends with Whitney? Now, what's interesting, and I've never forgotten this, Meredith storms out at this point. And then she starts talking about, I grew up in a home. My parents got divorced. They pitted me against each other. Like they were always asking me to choose sides. So again, there's something there immediately about choosing sides, loyalty, what it means to be in the middle. And then she also said there was just a lot. I think she said something like there was just a lot of like chaos and emotions. And I just had to be good, I think is what she said in order to sort of pacify everything, right? So here you have Meredith, who has an established background of being pulled in two different directions. You know, as I say, this clearly has some sort of ambivalent relationship to being in the middle where on the one hand, there was like currency in it in terms of being the go between between her parents, but also resenting having to be in that place. But also her saying to Jen, don't put me in this position of having to be ride or die with you. And so then though, you turn the corner. And like I said before, when Lisa says to Meredith in the season finale, I had lunch with Jen. I just wanted to hear her. This is where I'm at. I'm not saying I'm going to be super close with her. I just, I don't want her to be on the outside. Well, so again, it's so funny because Meredith says the exact opposite of what she means, where she literally says, hey, I don't ask you to like, you know, choose between me and, you know, Jen and you can be friends with whoever you want to be with and you can be loyal to me and still be friends with Jen. It's like she's saying all this stuff that she clearly does not mean. And then she even says in an interview, I'm deeply hurt that Lisa is like being friends with someone who had this damaging effect on my family. That I don't have control. (laughs) Yeah, so it's like, I just think one is fascinating that The through line of all this is loyalty. She's mad at Jen for putting her in a situation where she needs to be ride or die. 
Then she's mad at Lisa for not being the ride or die friend, but then not owning it. She's not even saying, Lisa, I'm mad at you. At least Jen does that. At least Heather does that to agree. Meredith's not saying, hey, Lisa, this is what I expect from you as a friend. She's saying, no, it's totally cool, but not meaning it and secretly super pissed at her behind the scenes. And you can like feel that throughout all of season two. She keeps saying, no, we're good. We're fine. You can tell it's not truthful. And so then by the time we get to the hot mic moment with Lisa, even though I get it, I get why she'd be upset and pissed about that. It's almost like that became the catalyst or the justified reason for her to just totally turn on Lisa. I think the main thing that comes up for me around Meredith is her deeply held rage. When she loses it, it's like, it's such a relief on some level, (laughs) but then she reins it back in so quickly and then disengages. (laughs) You know, so it's like, I can feel the part of me even here where I just feel disinterested in her. As we were talking today, even though I really felt like we were going to bring her in more, the places where I feel her split, it's so deep and it's around her her rage and how similar she is to Jen. There's a way, and Heather, in terms of creating some narrative, the way that she used social media, apparently, allegedly, a few different times to say things against Jen like to support her son or I don't know, whatever it was. And it was like that whole back and forth that went on in the second season about the um, something about when Jen was over at the house and the kids saw her vagina. And then all of a sudden, I think when, what's Meredith's son's name? Brooks. Yeah, when he was sort of being in a position to have to out himself on some level in terms of his sexuality. And there was something deeply painful for Meredith in terms of him being pushed. I don't understand why she was on the show. I don't understand why she put herself in this position. The only thing that I really saw her trying to do was champion her kids' success, you know, Uh, maybe her jewelry at some point. Talk about her and her husband as this great couple. Like there was something that I couldn't feel what she wanted her part to be on this. And it always felt like I don't want to be here. Yeah, I'm here, but I don't want to be engaged with what this is bringing up for me. Yeah. And it's so interesting because even when like you brought up that moment with Jen and Brooks and Jen's vagina being exposed, and even that was so interesting to me. I guess that was like the real genesis of the conflict with Jen because that's what sort of pissed Jen off because Jen and Meredith were friends before that. And I remember I actually rewatched this recently. There's this scene in the kitchen where Brooks basically on camera says... Jen made me so uncomfortable. I saw her vagina, which, you know, I want to say all of this. I mean, I find that uncomfortable. I find that they felt the need to have this conversation on camera in such a shaming way. Because I'm assuming, look, Jen's a lot of things. I don't think she was intentionally flashing Brooks. And it was such a shaming thing to say. And then Brooks says, I mean, I think he almost literally says, like, I don't want you hanging out with her. And Meredith, I think at that point, then sort of reneges on plans with Jen and sort of basically withdraws her friendship. And that's 
essentially what ended up really hurting Jen and causing Jen to, you know, go off and spill secrets. But, you know, just in context of this conversation, it's just so interesting that I remember taking that in and being like, wait, why isn't Meredith taking a clear stand? If it were me (laughs) and my 20-year-old son was trying to tell me who or who not to be friends with and was speaking about my friend in this very kind of shaming way on camera, I think I'd shut that shit down pretty quickly. You know what I mean? And and if there really was something that needed to be resolved there, helping him to resolve it in a constructive way that at least gave my friend some sort of grace. But the way that she kind of rolled over for Brooks and then was disloyal to Jen in the process and then never really took responsibility for that, but was so enraged by Jen's reaction. Yeah, there's something for me here about where Meredith does and does not take a stand. You know, so again, the fact that she'll sit there and say, I'm not mad, I'm not mad, I'm not mad. I don't expect you to choose sides. When in reality, she's mad. When in reality, she expects you to choose sides. So there's this way, again, like she kind of walks the middle where she won't take stands, but then where she does take a stand, it's almost like someone will finally do something that in her mind like in her mind, it's justifiably unforgivable. And then she'll hold on to it forever. And it's sort of like to the point that you're making about her rage, it feels clear she does not want to give up being angry at Lisa. Because I think it's even on the preview for the reunion, she says something like, let's be clear, Andy. I'm not angry anymore about Lisa's childish temporary tantrum. It's about other things, you know? And I just can feel it. It's like she's starting to get flack from people about the grudge she's holding. People want her to get over it. So now she's saying it's not that. It's something else. Which, by the way, what a Heather move right there, by the way, because she's saying I'm not mad about it (laughs) while at the same time making a passive-aggressive statement about it. So clearly she is mad about it. Total Heather, like Heather ease. And then saying, actually, I'm about angry about something else. And it's just so clear to me, you want to be angry at Lisa, just like you wanted to be angry at Jen. You want people on your side. And to me, it's like, but it's stuck. It's like she doesn't want the anger to move because then it moves. Like some part of her, I feel, wants to hold on to this anger where she feels like she's allowed it and she just wants to hang out there. What does it do for her? To me, it feels like something gets even though I don't know that it does, in her mind, something gets seen and heard here. It's justified. Yeah, it's justified. For me, the question is like, what happens if she were to let it move? Like, why is she so resistant to just looking like Lisa, for example, squarely in the face and saying, I am so mad at you. And like letting the anger move through her and then getting to the other side of it. I just want to feel that for a second because I can feel what she does instead, which is in her confessionals, says these really sort of snide, cruel, mean, bitchy, yes, things. She's mean. And when I think about the way that she is in the group, like when things are being filmed in the group dynamic, she's often sitting here with her very judgmental at the end of the table, gets up, disengages because I can't take this anymore. And then really lets us know how she feels about it all in her private confessional with the producer. 
And then anything that else that's being filmed, like the only thing that I, the, the impressions that I have are her with her family. I always felt so weird about her relationship with her son, like the type of relationship that they have. It's so awkward. And then the the triangle between her husband and him. I don't know. There, I remember really feeling something around that early on. You mean when Seth had Brooks like set out a bunch of roses for her, like in a romantic gesture on his behalf? <laughs> remember that? Yeah. Just you name it. He's have, getting dressed and having him consult about what she was wearing and... I don't know. I'm a mom of sons. So there was something about their dynamic that was so foreign to me that I it really impacted me. And then I was curious about it. But then the way that she had these conversations with Seth at dinner in their kitchen, everything felt so staged to me. What she was choosing to talk about, how she was choosing... I mean, that happens all the time, I guess. But for her specifically, it's kind of like when you're taking still pictures of someone versus candid video. I always felt her in these still pictures. Like I'm portraying Mm -hmm. this image and I'm going to do my best to sort of hold this, be in control. But where I give myself away is in these interviews. Let me ask you, By the way, I agree with you. And I think it's just interesting that, you know, for example, they don't really live in Salt Lake City full time. So each season they've got, you know, what feels and looks like a rented house. It's like their homes on the show always feel like stages. Yes. But my question for you, as we're kind of feeling in Meredith, that scene that the editors played for comedy where she keeps saying to Angie Kay and Dana, I'm not mad, I'm not mad, I'm not mad. (laughs) Why do you think she insists she's not mad? rather than just saying, hey, guys, this really pissed me off. Like, I felt like I invited you on the trip. You betrayed me. What was that about? Like, what's her investment in saying, I'm not mad, but secretly I am? I think she thinks that she's better than that. Like, my feeling is I am an evolved human. I get past things. I don't hold them. I'm very forgiving. Mm. When in reality, you know, like I have a an image that I'm upholding here as like justice feels really important to me. Fairness feels really important to me. Like something like I can just kind of feel these scales that I'm constantly trying to find balance in. And because I hold back so much, (laughs) really hold back so much, when these scales are being balanced, it's when I am completely lost my shit out of control, like screaming, or I am pointedly being mean in an interview where I'm letting someone really hear my position, but un, like unchecked. Uh-huh. It's so controlling. This makes so much sense. And it speaks to my confusing experience of her. What I hear in what you say is like, she knows better. Like she's smart enough to know I shouldn't demand my friend pick sides. I shouldn't be angry about X, Y, or Z. And yet she is. (laughs) So it's like she wants, I mean, she's a very bad actress, but she wants to present. She's got the emotional intelligence to know how she should 
be orienting to it as a mature adult. But there's an inner child throwing a tantrum. So it's like she's saying one thing as the adult mask when her inner child is doing something completely different. And the reason why I say this helps me is because that's one of the things that's been so confusing for me about Meredith is that there's a way, less and less as time goes on, but there's a way where there are times where she does behave in a way where I'm like, wait a second, in the insanity of Salt Lake City, she's behaving like the reasonable person. Like even her response to Heather's black eye. Like, I just felt like, oh, you're having a response I can relate. Like, her shock, her horror, are you okay? Jen's response was strange to me. (laughs) Meredith had a normal response. Or even Meredith saying, although I think she's not following through on this, but in the season finale when she said, look, if it comes out that Jen's been protesting her innocence when all along she knew she was guilty and she was doing these things to people, I'm going to have a problem with that. There are these moments where I'm like, Meredith almost sounds like a voice of reason. And so it's been so confusing to me to take that in and then contrasting that with all the insanity that's there. And yet this just kind of helps me really contextualize something where it's like, she almost feels like the savant or the really smart adolescent who had to like grow up before her time and knows exactly not what she's supposed to say, but yeah, like what the mature adult reaction is even when or if it's not her deeper emotional truth. And that's almost like, if we're talking about splits, that almost feels like the split in her, the way that she had to be the adult in the room versus the child in her that wanted to rant and rage and rave and scream and throw a total tantrum. I mean, I think she's got Jen in her. I have to keep that together. Yeah. You keep saying like when she loses it, but and when you say that, I'm like, I don't know that I've ever seen her fully lose it, like really lose it. And as I'm saying this, just what I just said, I'm suddenly getting the sense because people wonder like what's going on with Meredith and Jen. I feel like Meredith has a Jen inside of her in terms of like, if she really let loose, there's something in her that could throw a glass, could throw a fucking tantrum. And we know from her history, she was not allowed to have access to that. It sounds like the other adults, the adults were allowed to have it. She was not allowed to have that. And so, yeah, I think there's something really split in her around the gen in her that just wants to freak the fuck out and her knowing better and then presenting that face. Mm -hmm. And just owning it at the same time because it's like kind of the classic spiritual bypass, right? Like I've done my work. I've evolved to a level in which I don't, lose it in the way that Jen does. Even when I feel it, I have control here. I will not go there. I will disengage. I will not tolerate this thing that's happening here because I can't tolerate the way it activates the thing that's inside me that I actually haven't resolved. You know how people can't sit with something that's happening? Like Lisa can't handle the fact that people are arguing she has to have the resolution right away. Meredith can't handle people expressing themselves in a very uh, volatile, kind of real, expressive way because I haven't, if I'm her, I haven't allowed that to come out of me yet. I've cut that off in a way that I don't think I have it. And you will not reduce me to your childish antics here. 
And so then it just all starts to make sense because when you think about just the absurdity, and again, this is where I kind of see her like a Heather or a Jen because she's so out of touch with reality. The absurdity of the position she's been trying to assume of like clearly going over to Whitney's house, bringing up these rumors that she's heard, and then trying to deny that she was intentionally bringing up these rumors on camera as a way to mean-spiritedly get back at Lisa. Like, the fact that she... The fact that she's even trying to, like, pass this off as... You know, or, like, that she brings up the SEC and Angie K will be like, well, why do you care? Why does it matter? It's like, well, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. It's like, then why the fuck are you bringing it up? But, again, to me, it comes back to this idea... And it's not gossip. It's truth. (laughs) Right. Exactly. And it comes back to this idea of like, there's something she wants to do here, which again, it's the Jen thing. You know, she wants to be spreading gossip. She wants it to be vicious, but she knows better. She's a terrible actress. I don't think she's very good at it. Heather needs to give her some lessons. But I think in her mind, she's indulging it without... It's her own version of good versus bad, except I don't think she's languaging it that way. It's like the the disowned childish temper tantrum and viciousness versus like the mature, wizened adult, right? And she thinks she's getting away with couching this as like the mature, wizened adult, when in reality, what she's doing is she's indulging the vicious child that wants to throw a temper tantrum. What I'm seeing right now is the way that Heather used Whitney. I can see how Meredith used Lisa. You know, like there's that little duo dynamic where I'm going, Lisa's a little more, wears her heart on her sleeve, puts it out there and Meredith sits back. And even though they might talk about this behind closed doors, exactly as Lisa's couching it and saying it, Meredith might, with the group, pull back from that and be more in a position of, well, that's not exactly the way I see it, but I'm not going to tell you what that is. Hmm. Yeah. And it's like, it's just so interesting because I feel like, you know, the split in her is so deep to the point where she really does seem to get out of reality. Like the things that she says, her constantly bringing in that Lisa jeopardized the livelihood of Seth's 4,000 employees. I mean, she's repeatedly brought this up and she says it with such conviction. And I'm just looking at her Kind of like with Heather, I don't mean this in a mean way. I actually watch this and I'm like, she's concerned for Lisa's mental health. I'm concerned for your mental health. This just feels genuinely unhinged. I mean, first of all, I I don't... Does Seth actually own a... Like, does he own this company with 4,000 employees or does he just have like a higher ranking position at a company with 4,000 employees? Either way, the idea that Lisa's hot mic moment in some way jeopardizes those employees jobs it's just the most insane ludicrous thing and so when I look at that I'm just like she doesn't feel in reality to me because it feels like on some level she actually believes what she's saying in the moment will you remind me she was an attorney I don't know if she was ever a practicing attorney but she like went to law school passed the bar I want to say I mean some relationship to being a lawyer yeah which is strange right She feels to me like a prosecutor. If I were to imagine her in a position of justice, it's like, I feel like her role is in being a prosecutor, of finding people guilty of something rather than defending a position. She really has this 
finger pointing dynamic that tries to stack up a bunch of facts to prove something. And the facts are conjecture, you know, like this thing happened and now I'm going to dramatize it and link all the things that could have happened based on the fact that Seth was called out in some way. And by the way, he wasn't even really called out. Lisa made some general comment about like your husband can't keep a job. You know what I mean? It's like he wasn't even called out on anything real or specific. Like that's what's so ridiculous. I mean, that's part of what's so ridiculous about it. Yeah, it's just kind of like the driving need to hold on to anger for anger's sake. And again, kind of bringing in that it's like, it's not lost. I mean, all of this feels about loyalty. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, you wronged me, therefore you pay a price. And you're on my side or you're not on my side. I mean, again, it's different. Heather and Jen kind of own that, but Meredith won't own it. But that's what she's saying. You're either with me or you're against me. And if you're against me, you're paying the fucking price. I will never let you off the hook. What I was just sort of getting just now when you said that, based on what she had talked about in terms of her, her parents' split and division, was like maybe this is some reenactment of that dynamic where she wasn't allowed, right, to have her feelings about who she was going to spend time with. If she wanted to spend time with her mom, she was going to be punished by her dad. Like somehow it feels like the anger between her parents, you know, whatever was being played out there was getting used against her somehow. You know what I mean? Like she was the one receiving the punishment or perceiving the punishment. And she wasn't allowed to express any of that because it gave them fuel to say, you are against me. You're not being loyal to me. Your loyalty, it needs to be demonstrated. And the way you demonstrate your loyalty is to only want to spend time with me. You have to hate your dad or you have to hate your mom. Or, you know, if you somehow, it feels like a reenactment that she says, I refuse to be a part of and yet is. Yeah, well, that's like, as you say that, it's almost like I can feel maybe that's why there's an ambivalence in her around all this, because it's like on the one hand, I'm sure she resented that, right? Because she was put in these positions that she shouldn't have been put in where she had to choose and be in the middle. And yet I also have to imagine there was a kind of currency she got out of it. You know what I mean? In the sense of if she makes the right choice, she's good. Or maybe it's just more wanted. Or maybe it's more like I was saying before, it's like she learned to play the middle. I mean, again, she said that. She was like, I had to kind of navigate the middle. So again, she learned to play the middle. She learned to be the adult. She learned to be the non-reactive one. She learned sort of how to navigate these two polarized sides. And then she never really in that place got to develop a relationship to her own clear decisions Maybe today it's a no to mom. Maybe tomorrow it's a yes to mom. Maybe today it's a no, you know, tomorrow it's a no to dad. Maybe tomorrow it's a yes to dad. It's almost like that would have been the healthy thing where Meredith gets to have her yes, she gets to have her no, she gets to have her feelings. And instead it seems like all of that had to be driven underground. She didn't get to have a point of view. She didn't get to have her yes. She didn't get to have her no. She didn't get to have her no to what her parents were doing to her. She didn't get to have her rage. And so it's like, no one's really on her side. And so maybe that's where I'm feeling the ambivalence of both 
like this learned experience of I can't really take a stand. I have to kind of like, like we're saying, be the mature wizened one who doesn't indulge in these childish impulses, who's the adult in the room, but also at the same time, having that child who wants someone to be on her side, to have her back, to not throw her under the bus. And maybe that's really where like the split first comes in of like these two very kind of at odds aspects of herself. Yeah, the mature adult in the room who's not going to choose a side and rises above the pettiness and the child who's sitting there saying, shut the fuck up and like be on my side. Those two things are obviously at odds. You know, just like Heather's goodness and badness are at odds. There's like splits here. Mm-hmm. And why there's such a deep undercurrent or demand around like what I might hear as grow the fuck up, grow up, figure this out. Don't make me hold this for you. I'm out. That's also why she might it might make sense that she's saying to Lisa, no, of course I don't want you to choose between Jen and me. Of course you don't have to have like blind loyalty to me. Well, underneath that, that's absolutely what she wants. So then once Lisa does something that again, I keep coming to the words like, what like justifiably mm. unforgivable. It's like, oh, there it is. And now you're getting all of it. You are getting the mm. full extent of my rage and my wrath. I mean, it's a different situation. But with Jen, it's like, oh, I'm kind of initiating a rift in our relationship by not choosing a clear side. Like, I'm not going to like be firm with my son. I'm not going to have your like, I'm sort of playing this middle ground. Oh, now Jen has done something in response that's justifiably unforgivable. Now you're getting all my rage and my anger. And it's like, she's like a heat sinking missile that's just looking for a place to put that. But then like you're saying, even there, there's, there's a bind because she's not, she's not going to risk the tantrum all the way. She's not going to risk revealing the depth of her rage. Mm-hmm. That's again, that wizened adult who quote unquote knows better. So she's just going to indulge it in this sort of slow burning way where she gets to feed off it and feed off it and feed off it and feed off it and feed off it. And And then we're all kind of like stuck there with her. And it's such, this is where I can feel negative pleasure. Like if there's that in that slow burn, that's where I feel she gets this look on her face. There's something, her body starts to move a bit, you know, like when she's talking, it's almost sexual. Something happens there where... I feel something starts moving for her in that place. And it's so interesting to feel it. I was thinking about something when you were talking, like the part where she really gets triggered is when she does not feel seen. I can think of a few places where she gets completely enraged, like in the second season in that ice fishing trip is the place that I really remember her for the first time losing her shit. Like her glasses goes flying off the thing. She's like trying to walk away. She's trying to get Lisa off of her. And it's like, she's so furious because Jen doesn't see that she has done harm. And I'm thinking about that in the context of like her parents, maybe not seeing her. She's the pawn. She's being used in some way to get back at the other parent. You know what I mean? I feel like I can feel a place where she gets lost in dynamics where 
it's so triggering for her that that's when she starts feeling the rage. That's when it really gets hard for her to contain. Like someone isn't... Taking her in. Yeah, taking her in and centering her. Yeah. No, I mean, I literally... I did a little solo episode about this very thing, like that season, and I literally spoke to that. It's like that Jen not being able to take in what she's saying... (laughs) And to hear her and see her there, it, literally, it's what you're saying. That, like, it enraged mm-hmm. her. But I also think it's just so funny what you're saying. I just love that notion of things move for Meredith and the paralysis. It's like in the mm. stuckness, that's where things move for her and the pleasure she gets there. And it's so funny to me that you mentioned mm. it's almost sexual because two things come to mind. One, I remember, last was it last season? I think she was mad at Heather and Whitney for some reason. And she invites them over to her house at the time and like hooks them up to some sort of electrodes machine where she's controlling the dials and sort of quote unquote joking about raising the electricity and torturing them. And I remember I remember just watching that being like, this is one of those jokes that has like a kernel truth. Like she looked and felt like this mad scientist who was getting so much pleasure out of twisting the dial and exacting slow pain on them. And and then I just think about that look on her face this season when she was in the bathtub with Seth and massaging his taint. (laughs) And the look on her face, she just, she had a very distinct look on her face that to me felt... Yeah, there was there was something almost you could say there was something maniacal in her eyes, you know. So it's just there's some sort of um, now that you name it, it does feel like there's some sort of pleasure around twisting the knife, around the slowness, making people pay, making people suffer, having that con- like having that silent control. Mm-hmm. In a sexual way, right? Like if I could imagine her getting the most pleasure, it would be in that very like bound, making someone, you know, like you said, in that sort of, you're not allowed to move, being in control of something and then turning up the heat and still expecting them to be still or like I could just see the pleasure that she would get out of doing something like that. And it plays out. Yeah, I wonder if that's what she felt like when she was young. Like, I wonder if it felt like I've got all this passion and rage that wants to move through me and I'm stuck in this frozen position Mm. of being like the mature adult in the room. Like I'm frozen here and yet everything wants to move inside me. Mm. Because when you say that, I actually can see Meredith suddenly as like, a dominatrix. I could see her as this sort of S&M, you know what I mean, figure. Totally. And so now I'm kind of bringing, again, because we're, you know, part of this was to like sort of explore what bonds Heather and Jen. And it's like, even though it's different, right? Like seeing Heather as this very sexual, energized woman who's had to just own those parts of herself. You know, Jen, I think, has a lot more access to store heat. But obviously is compartmentalized in other ways. But, you know, suddenly just holding these three as like, these are three women with a lot of heat inside of them and a lot of fire and a lot of rage and a deep demand for loyalty. Mm -hmm. And so it suddenly does kind of make sense to me that they're all going to organize around one another, you know, in this situation. I mean, it almost feels like Mm -hmm. that's the natural order of things. Like that's where this had to go. 
if you think about it. Yeah, because there is, like you said, so much fire there that they need one of those three to burn it. Because if I'm Meredith and I cannot let this be seen and I'm holding it and everybody else, it better blow somewhere. It goes back to, uh, (laughs) for me, it goes back to Heather's black eye. When I felt that place where you were talking about Heather, talking to Meredith and Jen about like how they were going to play this out, the thing that you read, I remember seeing that scene as well and the camera being on Meredith's face and then Jen's face and Heather's face. And of course, you know, who the hell knows really what happened. But my feeling in that moment was they were all messing around. They were all super drunk. I'm sure Jen and Heather were fucking around and she took a knee to the, to the eye. And, you know, somehow Meredith was like, oh, what happened? Like, what was going down? I think Meredith was told. I think Heather knew exactly what happened. I don't think it was a secret. I just have this feeling that they were just, it was an accidental situation. Heather thought, I'm going to use this. I'm going to use this over Jen. I'm going to use this over, this would be a bad look for Jen. She's so violent all the time. The way that the cast might know something already. They already think they know what happened, but they don't really know what happened. They know Jen's a part of this, but they don't know exactly what was happening. I could totally see them just being messing around, just being drunk and having a good time and accidentally falling. Yeah, I just, I mean, it's everything we were talking about at the beginning. If she keeps it a secret, it is an instance of her being quote unquote loyal to Jen, right? And her not being able to tolerate that not being seen and heard in some way. Like it has to be known that I am being so loyal. And so, but to say something is to disobey the loyalty. So all I can do is hint at it, play at it, so people know I'm being loyal without actually being disloyal. And I mean, again, we're going off a hypothetical situation, but if I just sort of... Totally. If I just run with this for a second, it also just sort of stands to show or to illustrate the possibility in which Heather really, it's like, again, my goodness is defined by my loyalty. And therefore my loyalty needs to be like seen, heard and demonstrated. So everyone knows how good I am. It's like she feels like the idea of Heather hypothetically keeping that a secret to herself out of true loyalty. It's like she feels like a five-year-old kid. Like, who's just, like, got a secret, like, just, like, bursting at the seams. Like, I can't hold it. I can't hold it. I can't hold it. Everyone needs to know. Everyone needs to know. Everyone needs to know. You know what I mean? It's like, it just feels like this five-year-old kid who's just Uh got to spill the beans. I remember what happened. Oh, I'm unclear about what happened. When that one friend of the cast, I can't remember the woman's name all the time, but she goes over her house and she's like, are you okay? You know, this isn't okay. If something, why did you say... Jen's name last. And Heather's like, you know, with this look on her face that's like, you know why. I just really felt that interview between that friend and Heather to be so annoying. It almost staged also. Like Heather's like, okay, this is how we're going to play this. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I guess kind of like to sort of wrap this all up, for me, the reason why I feel like this season sort of brought clarity was I feel like it really did reveal how underneath all the chaos, all the confusion, all the arguing, all the drama, it really has always come down to this notion of like loyalty. And that's why I loved that one dinner at in San Diego. I forget what the theme, I don't know if there was a theme, but Jen was dressed. It was Jen's dinner that she threw. I think it was like the first night, right? And it was just one of those fights where it was kind of, kind of going off the rails and it was so confusing. And then just like, boom, it was like Lisa, Whitney, Dana and Angie just forcing Jen and Heather to get to this place of being honest and direct where finally it just came down to this really clear moment where Jen was saying to Heather, if you're friends with Angie Harrington, who created this Shaw Exposed account, I'm pissed at you. And Heather's saying, I am friends with her. And then there's a divide between them. I just remember watching that scene being like, oh my God, like that's the crux of what's going on here. It's so simple. It's so clear. Jen has a demand. You be loyal to me. You be ride or die. This means give up Angie Harrington. Heather is saying, no, I won't give up Angie Harrington. There's a conflict. And it just struck me at the time of all this chaos surrounding just that clarity because Heather and Jen, for whatever reason, don't want to just come out directly and own these deeper truths of this is what I'm demanding of you. And then Heather saying, I'm not going to meet that demand. And then being in the conflict of that. And when I look back at Salt Lake City, I just feel like what we've been watching for three seasons is just different variations of that same theme of what it means to be loyal, what it means to be ride or die, not being direct in that communication. And then just all the chaos that organizes around it. And then again, yes, I will bring in just the fact of Jen's possible guilt. Is she guilty? Is she innocent? Do we stay aligned with her? What does it mean to be loyal to her? It just feels like it's been this big waking dream of loyalty, friendship, and then to the point we've been making this whole time, these three women at the core who are so deeply split around these issues. And the way that's just been permeating outward this whole time. And it really makes me wonder about the role that their faith, the faith they grow up in, the way that structure influenced that deep confusion or question. When I pull back all the way, as you were just talking about that, I'm really interested and curious about the role that growing up in a community like that played. Well, I guess Heather and Jen grew up in it. Meredith did not. Lisa, I believe, was born Jewish and then converted to Mormonism. Late, like, I think, as a, I don't know how old she was. But yeah, it would be so interesting to feel into Lisa and Whitney's orientation Mm. to these themes because I feel like there's something Lisa's been trying to bring in from the beginning around seeing all sides and the willingness to hold space for the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. And Whitney's journey is interesting because she was more in the black and white realm and is now having a breakthrough. And I feel like you talked about Jem being the catalyst for the split. I feel like Whitney's been a catalyst for the integration. Absolutely. Yeah, there's something about her claiming her truth, 
willing to bring that forward to hold space for, yeah, the deeper truths that want to come through. And so to me, I've talked about this before, it's not lost on me that she's claiming something and integrating something. And this is the season that for me anyway, clarity has come in. This is the season where we can finally have a dinner where we finally get to the fucking bottom of it. And it's just Jen saying, be loyal to me. And Heather saying, no, I'm not going to be loyal to you in that way. Like, I just think that's really interesting. And I also want to say, in terms of that, it's been interesting to me that for me, as a viewer, this has been Lisa's most successful season as someone who, I don't know how the right language for it. I don't want to say like walks the middle. I think she's had very clear points of view, but I've felt Lisa clearly this season. I've felt Lisa's position this season clearly of, look, this is the stand I'm taking in these different situations. My stand is rooted in the willingness to see people's humanity and to move on. Like she says it at that Marilyn Monroe dinner. I think Heather says something ridiculous like, Whitney, you've had more hateful things to say about Lisa than anyone. And, you know, Lisa just says, Whitney has told me about the things she said about me behind my back. I'm good with it. Like, you know, in contrast to Meredith, Jen, Heather, who won't let anything go, Lisa's sitting there like, yeah, I know she's talked shit about me. She's apologized. We've moved on. Like, this is what adults do, basically. Whereas I feel like in past seasons, I don't think Lisa was walking with her positions as clearly and as directly. And so then it made her seem as if she was talking out of both sides of her mouth or sort of playing the middle. This season, she's felt so much clearer and stronger to me in sort of her position. So again, it's just interesting to me that Whitney brings in this truth and suddenly the cast is organizing differently. It feels to me. And maybe that's why, by the way, Heather, Meredith, and Jen became so close this season. It's kind of like the magnets had to find each other. It's like all the right magnets are finding each other. Like Lisa and Whitney are finding each other. Heather, Meredith, and yeah, Jen are finding each other. Stuff's getting clarified this season. Yeah, that's what I really was the most profound for me is towards the end of the season, who was close, who were catalyzing around each other and over the arc of the season who stayed consistently whatever like throughout and who who had an arc who actually has evolved and changed because I felt Whitney's attempts to bring things in in the first season versus the way she was holding them the third season also had a huge change Mm -hmm. the way Lisa was trying to say who she was you know, in the beginning versus how she was saying who she is, there was actual shifts in those people for me in a positive way. I totally agree. Yeah, I experienced the same way. I felt like Lisa and Whitney both, I could see the change in both of them this season for sure. And like, really, I, I think, was it with you I was talking about this with? Or was it someone else? Anyways, there was someone I was talking about this with where I feel like, the show has been good for Whitney and Lisa. Like I have this feeling like actually being on the show is part of, I don't know why I feel this way, but just intuitively, I feel like the show has helped facilitate this breakthrough for Whitney in some way, like breaking through something. And I also think Lisa, like that's just my sense. I feel like she's learned from watching herself on the show and yeah, that they both have internalized something and it's like real actual change, not like 
TV change. Well, there's the reality Mm -hmm. that they, I think, are able to be in. Yeah. Like there's a reality that they are welcoming in where on the other side of things, I think there's still a real commitment to compartmentalizing a delusion, performative element to things that, you know, and it's funny because I felt Whitney very performative in the beginning. And now I'm like, wow, I see her so differently. I know I forget. Like when I was rewatching the first season, I was like, oh, I forgot how much I disliked her. Like I really, I was triggered by her. You know, I mean, she was on that Heather train, you know, and victimizing herself and projecting onto Lisa. And so even more, I just respect this journey she's been on because she really broke through something. And I know she's been working on herself and I know she's had the assistance of healers, but you know, as we've talked about in this podcast before, it's my experience, good healers are hard to find. And yet it really feels like she is finding the right people and also clearly sort of emotionally intelligent and intuitively intelligent where she can internalize it and metabolize it and get it. And she's really breaking through some stuff for sure. She feels committed. Yeah, I mean, I'd work with Whitney in a heartbeat. I think as a kind of a final note, what I'll say is like my wish, (laughs) my wish for Heather is space to go really slowly and for someone to really be able to hold her hand through the confusion to really start sorting some stuff out in a very slow way that creates safety for her inner child. My hope for Meredith is that she has space to throw a fucking huge tantrum, to go into her inner gen, to explore her wild energy, to see and hear the parts of herself that did not get seen and heard as a kid or as a teenager, to just like let herself know (laughs) that rage and that wildness so she doesn't have to like hide it in the punishing slowness anymore. And I would say my wish for Jen... As she goes off to jail, my wish for, I mean, it's hard to know what to wish for her because she's, she feels so fractured. My wish, honestly, for Jen, truly, is that she can let herself honestly feel what she did without making an excuse, without victimizing herself, without saying why it's someone else's fault to truly feel what she did, to feel the impact of her actions, and then from there, start to understand why she did what she did, but to not bypass her criminal, destructive actions, and yet to truly let herself. So to me, that's my Cliff Notes hit about key ingredients for the three women's respective integration. Do you have any final thoughts? No, this was a... This was a journey. There was just so much here. I feel, I think I would say that I have no idea what we said (laughs) because it feels like so much is still hanging, but that I got some real clarity about things that I was curious about. So I'll be interested to hear back where we went because I can, there's something that feels, there's so much to say and this is the first time that I've really felt like we were so all over the place. <laughs> and I don't know what that means, but I can feel it had an imprint. I mean, it actually, to me, it felt pretty exhaustive. And I think we've really, I feel like we got somewhere for me anyway. I feel like I got somewhere with Meredith for sure. And I feel like even with Heather. So look, living in the 5D, Piper, there's so many threads all at once. We can't name them all. 
I think we did a pretty thorough job and uh, hopefully the listeners do too. Mm-hmm. So on that note, as always, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for your time, for your energy, for your wisdom, for hanging out here with me in these stories, in these cast of characters. Um, as always, you guys can find me on Instagram, Jamie Stein, J-A-M-I-E-S-T-E-I-N. I'm also starting to kind of get on TikTok, Housewives Empath. And if you're curious about my work and what might be needed for your integration, <laughs> uh, you can head to my website, hollywoodreadings.com and uh, send me an email. And that's all for now. Thank you guys again. See you on the flip side. Bye. Bye. Bye.